and welcome to Stand Tall, my podcast show. I look forward to sharing interviews and talks with and about people that create change, make an incredible difference and walk their talk. Everyone has their story, so stay with me as I go back the layers of excellence in all walks of life. My next guest is one of Australia's leading pioneers in Australian karate. Scott Brown's name is synonymous with authentic Japanese martial arts. He spent many years training in Japan and through his hunger for knowledge in the dojo and in the tournament arena has remained an influence to many people including myself. Scott has been one of the few martial artists that has taken the training and experience to the front line. As the owner of Strong Security, Scott has honed his fighting ability and now has extensive knowledge on the reality of armed and unarmed combat. I first met Scotty at a competition in Sydney in the early 80s. His aura literally filled the room and to say that I was intimidated was an understatement. He was one powerful dude. When I first spoke with him, he was gentle and eloquent, a true Budo warrior that walked with poise and his ego firmly in check. Over the years, Scott and I have become close friends, sharing the journey into meditation whilst retaining the martial arts spirit. Today I'm speaking with Scott whilst he looks over Sydney's Darling Harbour in the first week of enforced quarantine after returning from teaching seminars around the world. Welcome my good mate, Scott Brown. Morning, Andrew. How's quarantine, my buddy? Well, mate, I, I've got the pillow under my feet and I'm looking out over Darling Harbour. It's uh, like a enforced vipassana with room service. <laughs> and every day I'm maintaining a practice. So really we're, we're fortunate or I'm fortunate, you know, I've got a view, I'm getting food and no doubt this time will pass as well. So I'm trying to make the most of it, Andrew. Can you give us an idea of a day in the life of a martial arts warrior in quarantine, Scotty? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> well, uh, I decided to maintain the practice. I think it's very easy to to, you know, throw your hands in the air and say, woe is me. So most mornings I'm up around quarter to five and I do a whim. Sorry? It's nothing new for you. No, no. Well, that's what I say. I've just maintained my regular routine, Andrew, and I do a a Wim Hof breath work. And then thank goodness for, for, you know, the media or or I don't know what you call it, social media or applications. And then I do a, um, a Sam Harris 20-minute guided meditation and then a morning exercise routine. I have a, some uh, rubber bands that I took on my recent trip. So I just maintain an exercise practice in the morning and in the evening and then write a few haiku during the day and I've been doing reading. And fortunately, the television has stayed off. It's day five now, and I haven't had to resort to that yet. So that's pretty well my day. You mentioned Wim Hof. Can you just expand a little bit on on the Wim Hof philosophy? Yeah, look, I came across him, a friend of mine who is a uh, psychologist. He he does uh, counselling for uh, Vietnam and uh, current veterans. He put me on to Wim Hof so I commenced the practice in October 2019. So the routine, primarily he has three, it's like a triangle or a sankaku, you know, a triangle in sankaku in Japanese. There are three points of his practice. The first one is his breath work, which is 
Um, I don't know that it's new, but it's a little bit more invigorated than a than a pranayam breath in yoga, where you breathe uh, very strongly inwards and release your breath. You do thirty breaths, retain your breath between thirty and forty breaths, retain your breath. Mm. And then a big breath in for 10 and then start that cycle again. And what is interesting, if you do three rounds or four rounds, the initial breath retention may be a minute and 30 seconds, but it's absolutely amazing. The final breath retention, for me anyway, is between 2 minutes 10 and 2 minutes 20 seconds of breath retention. And it's without stress and evidently, uh, according to Wim Hof, this stimulates and rebalances your endocrine system and keeps your body in an alkaline state. And then his second practice is the cold showers. Now, mm, I have to say I'm a little bit of a chicken. I'm in the corner on this. (laughs) It's like Andrew Dickinson's got me in the corner on the cold showers. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I've just used this uh, quarantine period to start or commence Gently, the cold showers every morning, which seems to be working. And then his final part of the triangle is, I guess, a positive mindset. And I'm not too familiar with that positive mindset, Andrew, but I I think, you know, going back to what was his name, Rick Hansen, who said we need five to one ratio of positive uh, affirmations to a negative one because of that survival in bit amygdala or survival response so look primarily the breast control every morning andrew and i'm enjoying it very much and i do feel much um, better for it if i could say that and sam harris you and i are both great students of sam harris and we often talk about the benefits of his uh, website and pod and um, app can you just uh expand a bit on the, the the reason that you've chosen sam harris as your guide at the moment oh yeah so well yeah as you as you alluded to we've both been tracking sam harris uh, as a meditative practice and i think you put me on him initially yes and i i think i think what's been great is watching and actually my son-in-law put me onto him but what's um what's been great is that sam harris firstly he's he's a person of uh of reason you know he's a neuroscientist so his approach is very very pragmatic and rational to meditative practice he strips away the metaphors and the mystery of 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 meditative or mindfulness practice and actually when you listen to all his conversations and his lessons it's almost like meditation on steroids if i could use that analogy in that uh, he is into- for a, for a listener, Sam Harris will start you from the very, very basic beginning and yes. work with you slowly and incrementally to him to, at your own pace, which I think is fantastic for, for people that are listening that aren't familiar with, with meditation and, and uh, where to start. Yes, his structure is amazing and you do his basic course and then beautifully he has a a daily a daily like he records every day a meditation practice and it's a gentle guided meditation that is pragmatic and uh, reassuring and demystified so it's just it's it's a scaffold to support your practice i would say now scotty you have a great martial arts bio 
And it's how we first connected. I remember when I first met you, I was certainly intimidated by you, by your aura and your, your presence. And that's what impressed me so much about you when I first met you. But you, you, you went on to, to, you're very experienced and I'd like to just touch on when you first went to Japan, how that was for you. I, mean, I, think, I think you were there before me. I was there in 1991. I think you were there well and truly before me, weren't you? Yeah, Andy, I, um, I had a few martial arts instructors in Australia. Uh, I came from a, a farming, a rural farming background and somehow uh, the mystery of, the, of karate encapsulated me. 1973, I saw a Bruce Lee movie mm-hmm. and then em- embarked on a <laughs> – I said, oh, I want to be like that guy. So, yeah, I think many of us from our era were influenced by his, his stage or screen presence. I, I, was, and, I was influenced a lot by um, Kung Fu as well with David oh, Carradine. David Carradine, yes. Yeah, I, I watched some of that. And um, so uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, meet uh, some uh, instructor in Australia, a guy called Lawrence Vanerkirk, after a bit of a search around, who had just commenced teaching uh, a system or a style of sh- karate called Shorinjiru Kenkokan Karate Do under Masayuki Hisataka, who's now at Tenstan, I think. He's Okinawan in origin. And so I went to Brisbane in 1978 and trained uh, every day for sort of three months in Brisbane under Lawrence Vanekirk and then set my sights to go to Japan. So I think it was on October the 7th, 1979, I embarked on a journey to Japan to train with uh, Hisataka. And, what and was I was like, cause it, it, even when I went in 91, it was still the last bastion of martial arts, untouched martial arts. It must have been a, a completely different experience for you. Oh, yes, Andrew. I, I, I was a, like a uchidishi. Uchideshi, you know, a live-in student, and he was Taihen Kibishi Desne. He was very, uh, pretty severe and very strict uh, in his approach. And I, I've just come back from there, and on reflection, I guess I was so fortunate because I think he was at his zenith or at his peak, you know, he's in his late 30s. <clears throat> so the routine, interestingly enough, I felt very comfortable. The boy from the bush, as soon as I hit Tokyo, I just felt comfortable in that city, which was quite unusual because I can't stand cities. Um, and the home. I often feel that myself. Yeah. I, same feeling when I first went there. I felt like I had a real affinity with the culture and the people and I just fit in like a hand in a glove. Yeah, I, I can't explain that either, Andrew, and I, I concur with you. That was exactly the same feeling and I, I found that a mystery. I found that an absolute mystery that we could – hit Japan, a, a city that was so foreign, and we were still regarded as gaijin even in the, in the uh, late 70s, you know, the, as outsiders uh, and not even the Japanese. Oh, what are you doing? Karate. Oh, and because you couldn't enunciate it properly, they, they didn't understand what you were doing anyway. But, uh, yeah, look, it was a great experience and we were... <laughs> Unbelievably, six hours a day, uh, we had to do the children's class from, from four to six. We had a short break and then we had to do the adult, adult class from 6.30. It usually ran through to 
10 o'clock. That was six hours a day, uh, five days a week. And then on day six on Saturday, I travel with my teacher to various – we did three classes on the Saturday in different areas. <clears throat> and then Sunday was the only day off to write letters and because uh, no internet then. Write letters, do washing and regroup for the week. And that was uh, just on nearly seven months, Andrew, six days a week. Uh, six hours a day, and uh, it was a real steep learning curve and a wonderful experience for me. Has your relationship with Japan changed or evolved over the years? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Yes, um, unfortunately, I went through a period of sort of mm, somewhat uh, not cynicism, but I guess uh, a realism in that um, I don't think the Japanese culture per se has the, uh, how would I say, not not the licence, I can't think of the right word, but, you know, has the all-encompassing ownership of martial arts or Japanese karate. When we first went to Japan, I think they did, but it's certainly over the years as as it spread throughout the world. Yes, there's been a massive evolution with people like Patrick McCarthy who have actually, you know, taken the Japanese uh, system of karate or Okinawan system and deeply analysed it and been able to articulate what it is or demystify uh, Japanese uh, karate do in probably or Okinawan karate do in a far more articulate and accessible way for the Western mind. Do you feel like it's almost a, a love-hate relationship with Japan now? <laughs> um, look, I, I was really fortunate. Um, the Hombu Dojo, which was actually opened around 1946 or 47 by the founder of uh, Shorinjiru Kenkokan, but my last trip was to go and see my teacher, who's uh, Hisataka Sensei now. So, um, he'll be 80 next year and to go back to the Hombu and, and train there with him and with his son. Um, no, I actually probably, there was a period of time where I felt a little bit alienated, but now I feel quite connected and far more insightful as to uh, the nature of uh, Japanese Budo, if I could say that. So, no, I have a, a fondness for it now, Andrew, um, and probably a deeper fondness for the the culture and country of Japan and the people, of course. I think that ties in with your own evolution as a person, Scott, with the fact that you are far more understanding, forgiving and approachable as part of your own self-work as well. Yeah, that's that's probably very true, Andrew. And I mean, the last trip I just went with open arms uh, without... I didn't identify, I think, for a long period of time, you and myself and many journeymen or journey people in the martial arts identify themselves as a martial artist and it's it's time in our age to move past that and identify just as a human and uh, so without that weight on your shoulders oh I'm a six dan in karate do when you drop all that you can move through the world in a far more open and inviting uh, manner if I could say that. That's certainly a very evolved way of thinking because a lot of the old martial arts masters they hang on to their identity for, and that's all they have. Yes. What was yeah. T- around, so, what was, sorry, sorry, Scotty, you were saying? Yeah, look, a, a friend of mine, I, I travelled many times. I was able to uh, 
Well, as you know, you know, if you're in a ruha or in a school, if you travel to Japan, there's this uh, very strong expectation. As soon as you hit the tarmac, you've got to call your sensei and turn up at the dojo and then you're bound by that for any period of time you're in Japan. And it took me a little while to sever that, um, that uh, not bond, but sever that uh, tether, that, that reining in. And, and I was fortunate enough to travel quite a few times with a close friend of mine throughout Japan and not feel that I was obligated to go to the dojo. And that gave me a great or a deeper insight into Japanese culture and history and and also was able to have a more realistic approach to the relationship with the Ruha or the school. Yeah, I certainly concur with you on that. Now, this is something which can can be totally, and something really surprised me about you when I first met you, was the fact that you are running your own security company. What was your thinking around starting your own security company? Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, look, that, that's probably uh, it's not a mystery, but it was completely organic and opportune. Um, uh, I came originally to Sydney from rural Australia or central west New South Wales uh, from a farming and grazing background. I came originally to Sydney post my second period in Japan in 1985. I went back for another uh, seven months to practice with Hisataka in 1985. On returning to Australia, the rural uh, outlook was not good. And so I specifically came to Sydney to set up martial arts. I wasn't sure how I was going to do that, but to set up and uh, try to gather a or develop a business model around teaching karate do or shirinjiri karate. This is your Burke Street Dojo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Burke Street I, Dojo. You were teaching in your Burke Street Dojo and I was teaching at City Gym in Crown Street just across the way. That's that right. Time. I remember seeing your dojo there and I'm thinking, God, I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that was a great little place. We got it very cheaply and we, uh, a couple of students and I got in there and painted it and put the flooring in and it wasn't very big but Geez, we sweat and hurt in that place for a long, long time. And it, it was a lot of, I built a lot of good friendships and a lot of good training there. And you built the security company up around about the same time, did you? Yeah, I, I, um, I got a job, Andrew, working as a pig wrangler on Mad Max 4. Uh, and that's the one that Tina Turner was in. And um, we were cleaning up pig shit on the set after each film shooting day. <clears throat> and then from that, Rutger Hauer came out to do a movie and Nicole Kidman did a mini series. I think it was called Saigon Hilton. And uh, Rutger Hauer came to do Salute to the Jugger. And through the unit manager, we got the job of doing the site or set security. And that's the time when security licensing first came in, in 1987. So, De facto or vicariously, I had to get licensed and that's how strong security services commenced in film, set and site security uh, and looking after some of the actors and uh, providing uh, security services for the film industry. Around about the time, 1987 was the time that I was working in security and door work as well and I found that I had a real epiphany when it came to 
traditional techniques and how they how effective they were when working in more of a realistic situation. I'm just wondering whether you have an opinion on the effectiveness of traditional martial arts and how it's changed since working in security. Yeah, look, that's that's a, a great question, Andrew, and I don't know. For me, it's not so much about the technique, <clears throat> you know, a punch is a punch or a strike is a strike. I really think what happens when you transition or move from the dojo to a street environment, uh, a, a couple of things happen is that the street environment um, is, uh, how would I say, it's not controlled, you know, unless you control it. So there's no referee. So you're, the areas that I lacked when I first started working on the door, and I did get compromised a few times, and that was very uh, disappointing and disheartening, uh, was your situational awareness and your environmental awareness. I don't think that's uh, as much as you think it might be built into you in the dojo. It's very context-specific. So working on the door did definitely uh, uh, elevate my ability to read the environment, which is, um, you know, your intrapersonal and the and your total perception of the environment. And then the situational awareness is the inter, interpersonal uh, dynamics to assess threat and risk and then respond accordingly. The, the beauty of this is that you have distilled down techniques and now teach a program called ESP. Can you tell me a little about your reasoning and the, the, the history of this program? Well, over, Andy, over probably a period of 10 years, you know, we looked after the Brooklyn Hotel, the Union Hotel, the Good Bar Nightclub, which was some real dodgy people turned <laughs> up there. And, and so violence and aggression is, uh, is spontaneous, it's chaotic, and you don't get a lot of uh, initial warnings, I guess. So ESP or essential self-protection, over that period of 10 years, we sort of identified... I think probably, well, I've encapsulated into nine of the most common assaultive behaviours that we experience. So over that period of time, uh, silly people, uh, male or female, but usually intoxicated men or ego-related men, uh, would, uh, you know, attempt to intimidate or assault you, and, but they seem to have a pattern of behaviour. And so we distilled nine of the most common assaultive uh, patterns, I guess you could say. And then I then made a prescriptive approach to those nine most assaultive or common assaultive behaviours, which then we just worked on over and over and over and over again under increasing pressure or increasing non-compliance. So those techniques then became intuitive uh, based on that assaultive behaviour. And it, it may not uh, cover all ways you can be assaulted, but uh, over a 10-year period, we noticed that there were patterns in people's uh, assaultive behaviour. So that's how ESP has evolved. And then from that, I've, I've implemented, how would I say, um, principles and been able to also teach uh, principles of movement, distance, timing, angling into, into the uh, system. Would you agree also that Without the correct mindset and work on the mind, and which in turn works on the ego, it's like handing someone a loaded gun. 
without an, without any instruction on how to use it, you need to really have that mindset and mind training that disconnects you from the, the adrenaline charge and the fear. Is this something which is approached in your course? Oh, yes, Andrew. I, I, again, I, I did a lot of research over, over the period. and Unfortunately, I was able to, um, at the same time, I, I went to University of Witness, uh, Western Sydney and did a Asian and International Studies BA. My sub-major was around uh, philosophy. And one of those, uh, uh, one of the semesters, we did theories of conflict and violence from interstate uh, or interstate actors on, on a global perspective and then interpersonal violence right through to, believe it or not, necrophilia as a form of deviant violence. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my go-tos or reference, uh, two of my references during that period were um, Gavin De Becker's book, The Gift of Fear, an oldie but a goodie, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grosman's book on, um, on killing so fortunately, you know, I was able to pursue an academic um, discovery on theories of conflict and violence. And I, I, coming back to your question, unless we take a holistic approach to violence and aggression uh, and put it into the context of contemporary Western society, uh, then you're going to get caught. So I agree with you. When I say caught, you know, your ego will take over, you'll use excessive force. So... ESP has probably four. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of martial artists, uh, they don't get that. And a lot of the general public don't get that. So ESP has four subjects or four, four major topics. And if I could just go through that, is, is that okay with you? I just, yeah, I just, sure. absolutely. So the first one, firstly, we need to learn about the physiological or the sympathetic nervous system response to interpersonal violence. So I, I use that, uh, so that's part of it, is, is what are the physiological responses to interpersonal violence and how we can better manage. You can never control fear, but if you have an understanding, you can better manage your fear response, which uh, correlates to your ego, management of your ego as well if you're an adventure-based operator. We look at the two primary or archetype operators, whether they be martial artists, police, military, which is either fear-based or adventure-based. So you need to have insight into your own nature of whether you're either of those operators. If you're adventure-based, you need to temper your behaviour and your anger. If you're fear-based, you need to harness that to be able to operate under duress. And then the second part is the legal uh, uh, requirements, you know, the both around the law on use of force and uh, it, it must be reasonable and necessary under the circumstances as the individual perceives it. So you really need to know the use of force and the force continuum to be able to articulate uh, or justify why you used uh, the amount of force you did in controlling and restraining a person and or where the demarcation is between control and restraint and self-defence. So you've got to have a good understanding of the law, Section 418 of the Crimes Act. Uh, So that's the second part of uh, ESP. The first part is the practical. So we have uh, practical drills and the nine uh, prescriptive responses. 
And the final part of ESP is, thank goodness, uh, thanks for Sam Harris and all the reading you and I have done. And I have to say our past history going to yoga ashrams and exploring uh, meditative practice, uh, I implement a mindfulness-based practice. So we use seven factors of mindfulness, uh, which are both strategic and tactical in their application through to a, a more holistic uh way to better integrate yourself into into society i guess andrew and that's sort of that's been my passion now for the last few years as you know i've often said i'd love to get you to present your work to my listeners and students and it's something which i i'm absolutely fascinated by and um would you be interested in coming down and doing running a workshop one day for people that are interested Oh, yeah, absolutely, Andrew. You know, I've got a – I think that's sort of probably my – bit of my mission in the later later life, how we can um, use our background in the Asian martial arts to then uh, articulate it in a way that people can understand that they can move more safely through society and feel more confident. So ESP sort of – catches those areas and I was fortunate enough over the last two months pre-virus or, or surfing the wave of the virus around the world, um, uh, I went to uh, Germany, England, Canada and the States to deliver and I guess better um, craft my delivery of ESP. So, yeah, and working in all of those countries with very senior martial artists, I found that I still had something to offer and they uh, embraced it and enjoyed the course very much. So uh, that well, gave me a confidence, I guess. We'd absolutely love it, Scotty. So mm-hmm. I think for um, people that are looking at that, they can contact me through andy at nsma.com.au and I'll leave that email address on the, on the, the bio of this podcast and just encourage this this to continue with this with this uh, with this train of thought with you oh thanks very much andy I, I feel absolutely privileged to be able to have a conversation with you and you know there's a few of us that have shared this journey over the last i just realized it's 42 years since i first went to japan and you know met you in the as we said in the late 80s and i, I still uh, i'm sporting a chipped lower tooth. Thank you for your lovely uppercut. <laughs> no, getting you back. <laughs> that so monstrous every- left turn kick and then left side kick you've got. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember with such fondness. Yes, I, it's it's sort of a little bit uh, masochistic, but uh, our friendships come out of being on the on the tatami together, and it, it's it's as it's as solid as our sparring was. That's for sure. Wonderful. Great to speak to you this morning, Scotty. I really appreciate your time and all the best with the quarantining. Thanks, Andy. Day five, uh, only nine to go, so we're, we're, we're seeing a glimpse. But it's a very good, as I said, enforced, enforced Vipassana with room service. So what a wonderful opportunity. Great, Scotty. I'll speak to you soon, mate. Thanks, Andy. Bye-bye.